You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. What I want to begin the today's discussion with you about is the concept of success uh, in the practice and what counts as success in the practice. Because very often we look at asana as the benchmark of success in the practice. And if we do that, we end up prioritizing those individuals who are blessed with a certain physique, you know, somebody who's born with natural flexibility or natural strength, and somebody who has the opportunity to do a lot of physical practice. Not everyone does. So how do we define success in the practice? And how do you define success? The first thing to understand is that the metrics by which we judge the practice um, were never really meant to be external. They could be felt or experienced in kind of an interpersonal or human-to-human basis, but it was never meant, like the yoga practice was never meant traditionally to be an aesthetic performance, something that we're, that is judged on how it looks. Um, so in that way, you know, my teachers in India are often known to say, how many asanas are there? And uh, if we think about primary series, sure, you can count the number of asanas in one series or another, or look up all of the names of the known asanas. But they were known to say, however many living beings are in the world, that's how many asanas there are. And what I took from that is the idea that everybody is going to do the asana a little bit differently and that that's okay. So that the that however many living beings there are, there would be that many variations or versions of all of the asanas. So if we have that, there's no way we can judge the success of our asana practice from an aesthetic performance. So it's not the Olympics of yoga. You know, it's beautiful. It's, Olympics is beautiful, wonderful. It's very inspiring to watch. Very, they have so much discipline, so much physical capability, so much, so much to really uh, be inspired by, by watching in, in, in the Olympics, you know, something like that. But yoga asana is not a, an aesthetic competition. Um, so we, if we start to judge our success in yoga by an aesthetic performance, then we miss the true success that could be available to everybody who practices. So that's the first thing to think about is that yoga is not an aesthetic performance and yoga is not an aesthetic art, but yoga is a spiritual practice. So practice is different than performance. And this is important to understand when you perform something, you are, uh, you, you sort of put on a particular show for a particular reason. Performance is wonderful. It provides entertainment. I'm sure everybody here watches Netflix, you know, without performances by actors on Netflix, we would be bored in the evening, right? So performance is not bad. I'm not criticizing performance, but I'm trying to help you understand that practice, what we do on our, our yoga mats is not a performance. And we feel when, when we feel we are performing our spiritual practice, we are um, kind of missing the point, you could say, right? We're kind of um, veering a little bit off the path uh, from what the traditional practice represents. So practice, not performance. And practice comes from the Sanskrit word, which is abhyasa. And our abhyasa is our, is our practice. And what a practice implies is that we'll never get it right. We'll always be practicing, number one. And that, that that's, includes a humility aspect of it. Practice includes the idea that there's an effortful striving that we reach towards and practice also includes the idea that it's something we do for ourselves. There is no final, like, ultimate judgment of the practice. It's only practice, not performance. And that's a really important thing to understand because if you do a practice that has a goal of a performance, that's a different thing than what yoga practice is. We're practicing for ourselves. The performance, you could say, if there ever is one, is the kind of human being we are when we get off the mat. And in this way, the performance or what we're, what we're using our effort in the practice for is to become a better human being off the mat when no asana is there, when no one is looking, when everything goes wrong. This is when our yoga practice really starts to shine through. And nobody else may notice the difference except you. 
So I'll give you an example of the way this abhyasa, this personal practice can work. The same obstacles we face in our practice, regardless of what the asana looks like, the obstacles we face in our practice, um, the frustration. Everybody in this room has felt frustrated in the practice at some moment. Everyone, no one has not felt frustrated. I would imagine that me too, frustrated, Ugh, you know? And how about this thing called life? Nobody in this room has also not felt frustrated at one moment or another at this thing called life. All you have to do is call 1-800-CITIBANK and this can immediately increase frustration. You know, I'm nothing personal about Citibank. I mean, like any banking online phone system, I think, could bring that up. Or just any 1-800 number in the United States of America, whether it's AT&T, Verizon, Citibank, Wells Fargo, AAA, whatever it is. As soon as you hear that little computer thing that says you know, press one for, and it immediately, for me, I immediately feel I'm applying my yoga practice now. I will engage Mula Bandha and do deep breathing while I engage with this artificial intelligence device at the other end of this phone call. Maybe that's just for me. Maybe you have something else that's particularly frustrating for you. Um, so we all experience these irritations in our life. How we respond to that is a direct result of the habit pattern of the mind. And without yoga, Without our abhyasa, we will merely perpetuate whatever habit pattern is the predominant pattern of the status quo on the planet. And the predominant pattern, when frustration is present, is to fight back against that, to become angry against that, to try to um, kind of resist in some way or another, um, whether that's external resistance or internal res resistance. And I'm not saying that resistance is bad. Um, sometimes it's necessary, but the feeling of frustration, what it does for us when we get what you could call from a neurobiological sense triggered, when our reaction patterns are governed not by our wisdom, but by our heightened emotionality or a heightened state of arousal. And when this happens on our yoga mat, we have a great and wonderful opportunity to do the practice of changing the habit pattern of the mind, how we respond to stresses how we respond to frustration, irritation, depression, uh, annoyances that arise, whether those are within our body or whether those are external that arrive and interact with us. Then in a similar life circumstance where a similar emotional response is triggered, we can apply our practice to respond better or to regulate our emotions better, to essentially become a better human being. Now, it might not be evident from the outside. So for example, Let's say you call in an irritating 1-800 number that puts you on hold for 30 minutes and then disconnects you. Um, previously, you may have, you know, called back and waited again. And the first human you talked to became the receptacle of all of the frustration. You know, sometimes you feel really bad. For the, I can sometimes think about like the human beings who are at the end of the AI chain and, and how much sort of frustration they like receive on the end. I feel sometimes I feel really sorry for them. So again, nobody may notice on the outside. You may have reduced your frustration by 50%, but it was still there, right? But they didn't know without yoga, it would have been double worse. But you know, oh, three years ago, I would have yelled at this person. Now I'm just irritated, right? So you have reduced the anger level by 50%. Nobody, nobody really can see this, but you, you know, it takes a long time for the people around you to actually see, oh, you're a different person now. Interesting. If you get that feedback, you've probably been practicing for a long time. Once your family members start saying to you, wow, you're so calm. What happened? Wow, the yoga must work. At that point, you really hope they say, maybe I should come to class. But they don't always say that. They're like, wow, it's so good for you. Keep practicing. <laughs> Great. You want to come to class? Oh, me? No. I'm so stiff, I cannot, you know, so you just hope they come one day. So if we take that trajectory of success, then the incremental changes we experience in our life is the motivation you need to keep going. And we also have to let ourselves off the kind of spiritual guilt trip of I'm not a perfect human being. I, I wasn't nice. I wasn't completely nice and forgiving when I talked to the call center people. Instead, I was just a little less frustrated. Why wasn't I kind and forgiving? Because we're work from here and we're slowly working our practice, accepting that we will never be perfect. Now, another measurement of success is the sheer weight of coming onto the mat day in and day out 
time and time again, through times when it feels good, through times when it feels bad, through all sorts of circumstances. There's a very common measurement of kind of mastery of any skill that was presented um, by uh, uh, the writer Malcolm Gladwell in a book called Outliers. It's a really wonderful book, a great read for anyone who's interested in it. And in Outliers, Malcolm Gladwell presented uh, the research that to reach mastery level at kind of any discipline, there's a particular benchmark that everyone needs to hit. You know that benchmark? What's the, anybody know? 10,000 hours. 10,000 hours of practice. And what he did in that book, which was really interesting, is he traced stories of what we would, what we tell ourselves in our contemporary mythology in Western culture of the individual who has succeeded against all odds. And he uses a couple really interesting test cases. For example, Bill Gates, I'm sure everybody knows what Bill Gates is, you know, like brilliant founder of Microsoft. Well, we think this man, he pulled himself up by his bootstraps and through sheer grace and genius became, you know, founder of this amazing company. And then Malcolm Gladwell kind of dissects that a little bit and says that actually, yes, he was brilliant and is brilliant. And yes, he's a super hard worker. Um, however, there was one very interesting thing that gave Bill Gates the opportunity to accumulate the magical 10,000 hours of coding computer tech at a time when no one else did. And this is what set him up for extraordinary success. And he happened to go to a high school where they had a terminal computer at a time when this was still a rarity in the United States, like in the 1970s. That terminal had a time sharing with the University of Michigan, which gave him access to one of the largest mainframe computers in the United States at that time. Now we can find that in, you know, like a MacBook Pro, but there were no MacBook Pros in the 1970s. There were just giant rooms filled with servers that no one really knew how to work. But because Bill Gates went to this particular high school that had this particular access, he was able to accumulate 10,000 hours of coding and experience in computer technology when no one else had access to it. What an amazing privilege and what an amazing intersection of kind of random serendipity. How many other brilliant children existed in the United States that were interested in computers at that time, but didn't have access to a mainframe, didn't have access to a terminal connected to a mainframe computing system, didn't have access to those resources to be able to accumulate those 10,000 hours. So there were brilliant people that started to accumulate those same 10,000 hours, but they were 10 years too late. So because he sat at this brilliant intersection of privilege, hard work and genius, he was able to become the person, the success, the story of success that he is today. And we consider this to be an outlier and we attribute it only to him. But what Malcolm Gladwell is saying is that we have to attribute it to our life circumstance as well and our cultural circumstance as well. So if we think about the great yogis of times past, what gave them the unique circumstance to generate those 10,000 hours? And it's almost as though the ancient yogis knew that in order to become a master of spiritual practice, they would need to create a similar type of ecosystem around spiritual practice. And this is why thousands of generations ago, the path of the yogi was considered a path of the renunciate, which means that as soon as you felt the urge, as soon as you felt, I want to give my life to this practice, we, the, 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 the students were immediately encouraged to follow a teacher and renounce worldly possessions so that they could practice in an immersive and all um, kind of all, like all inclusive setting without any additional distractions that would prevent them from accumulating those 10,000 hours of practice. At the same time, the yogis of times past also realized that our people who are interested in yoga, they're not going to renounce their family, their job, and live in a cave and do only spiritual practice. So there were two paths that were presented. There are paths of the renunciate path which were the lineage holders of the practice, those individuals who would give everything of themselves to teach, to learn, and to protect the knowledge of the yoga practice. And there were those individuals who would devote as much time as they could, but maybe in this lifetime, it would take them the whole lifetime to accumulate those same 10,000 hours of practice. And those individuals were on a non-renunciate path or what's called the householder path. And there were these two paths presented. So it's interesting to think about when we reflect on the obstacles we face to our success in yoga. We think that it's, oh, my tight hip. Oh, we think it's because 
I am not flexible enough in my back bend. Therefore, I'll never do kapotasanas. I'll never do a good second series. And we reflect on our physical obstacles. But we need to take a moment and reflect on the other obstacles that prevent us to understand the full intersection of time and space. I sit in a place of great privilege because I started this practice when I was in college, when I was in school. So I had an inordinate amount of free time. I had summers off, which are a wonderful thing that, that, that you have when you're in school. And I went to India for the first time for two months when I had the summer off between one semester and another. And I had no other worldly obligations. I was lucky enough to be supported by my parents when I was in school. So when I came back from India, I moved back in with my parents and practiced in their garage and I didn't pay rent and I saved all the money that I made so I could go back to India for another six months. And since I had no job and no worldly possessions, I gave everything I had of my life for about 10 years to just go back and forth to India and practice as much as I could, to do as much asana as I could, to do as much meditation as I could, to learn as much as I could. There are so many people who wanted the practice who wanted to do the same thing, but didn't have the privilege that I had to do that. Friends of mine, people that I know came from different financial backgrounds or came from a family who didn't support their yoga practice. For example, some people who loved the practice came from strict religious, conservative religious backgrounds. And when they started to do yoga, their families expressed deep religious concern that they were being possessed by some evil spirit. <laughs> it's like... It's humorous on one. It's whole thing. So no, we won't support your practice. In fact, we're going to try to perform an intervention on you to get you out of this cult called yoga. So there were people that were resisting. Oh, if I practice, then my family disowns me. So they sit in this very crazy schism when we think about it. You know, if you practice yoga, it sounds absurd. You know, you become a better human being when you practice yoga. You know, you think other people—they're the ones with the evil spirits over them need to do some yoga to remove their evil spirits and they'll see the light. But uh, they just sit there um, blinded by our, their own delusion, right? And it's in some weird way, it's like they're genuinely concerned, right? But uh, maybe save it for something else, right? Directed into the practice. Uh, so, I, I, for, I, so I had friends whose, whose family said, you know, you practice, we disown you. So what a huge resistance. And then they don't have family support. They don't have the family, the, you know, to, 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 to lean back on and say, okay, no problem. You can move back in with us. And we're so happy you found the practice. Let us help you go to India for six months. You know, no, I had friends of mine that desperately wanted to go to India, but because of financial reasons and life obligations, they couldn't do it. They were a single, you know, either, a, you know, a single parent and couldn't afford to save the money to go back to India so many times. They've done it with great sacrifice but not for as much as I could because they didn't have the freedom. Another friend of mine that had absolutely no financial support and no family and all he wanted to do was practice, but he couldn't because he had to work numerous jobs just to be able to sustain himself. The household did not have any education to fall back on. So I feel like there are so many untold stories and unsung heroes, people that have given everything they could in the practice but because of the intersection of disadvantage versus the intersection of privilege, they weren't able to succeed by these external metrics. And so this is important to think about where you fit in into this kind of story of success that we like to tell. Acknowledge our privilege where privilege is there. Acknowledge our disadvantage where disadvantage is there. And understand that even though there is this kind of universal benchmark of 10,000 hours to reach a certain level of proficiency or mastery in any practice. Some people are on a direct path to that. And that's one path. The yogis of times passed. you are on the renunciates path. If you renounce everything to give of yourself to this, it's like Bill Gates renounced his high school life to work at a computer. If you think about that, he never went out. Every experience of fun for him was sitting in front of a computer. Reflect back on your own high school experience. Would you have given of yourself for a computer in the same way? Maybe not. But maybe if you were given the opportunity in high school to say, do you love yoga? And do you want to practice all day instead of math class? Instead of algebra? Would you like to do some asanas? You know, imagine if you had that opportunity. Could you say, I would like to study the yoga sutras instead of the American Civil War? 
sign me up for that, please. And my least favorite subject. I, I pretty much went to sleep during that entire semester. So if we could think about that, you know, we would give of ourselves if we could, right? We would give of ourselves. We give your, that's the renunciates path. Then we have a householder path. It's not that we do not succeed on the householder path, family obligations, responsibilities, financial responsibilities, cultural responsibilities, what intersection we sit at in that regard. We are on a longer path, but the path to success is still there. But we do not measure ourselves against these outliers. Oh, this person, this person, look at them. They're this, you know, this, this great person. I could never be like them. If you sat in their exact situation, you may be exactly where they are. And that's something to remember about this paradigm of success that we sit at, you know, to, to, to reflect on uh, the metrics by which we can judge our success, to reflect on the metrics by which we can also judge our failures and release the guilt, the shame around places where there are shortfalls in our own lives and shortfalls in our own practice. And I think that's an important part of our spiritual journey, an important part of our abhyasa, to not think that we're a failure because we're not the outlier of success, to not think that we're not good enough because we're not, you know, like the Bill Gates of the computing world. There's so much talk in our um, North American culture and Western culture, particularly North American culture, about how you could be the best so I don't know if you, you hear that word some people use. And I, I used to say that, you know, this is the best thing ever, you know, or this is the best practice. But when people start to use this word best, this is the best something. So let's just give me a funny example. Um, hot dogs. Okay. Is that a funny example for everyone? Hot dogs. So if you, a vegan hot dog. Okay. Uh, the other hot dog is mildly disgusting. Right? I'm going with this. Equally fun. How about both? Right. This sounds like a summer. It's a, it's a summer. So let's go for ice cream and hot dogs. This is the best vegan ice cream and hot dogs in the whole world. This is the best hot dogs and ice cream you'll ever get. This is the best. What does that make you feel like? Competition, right? The best means that there's also what? The worst and everything else, right? So this means that out of 100, there's the best. And then it just is a downward spiral into the worst. So as soon as we start describing ourselves as the best, then we set ourselves up in this competitive framework to define success by the one and only who is privileged enough to sit at that intersection of all of those different blessings. And we exclude everything else and everyone else that was not so privileged to sit at that intersection of all of those different kind of random and serendipitous circumstances. So when we can say, you know, you can totally say this was the best hot dog ever, but we have to be very careful of, of how we speak about ourselves, how we speak about our teacher, how we speak about our practice, how we speak about our offerings in the world, whether it's a yoga class or whether it's a hot dog or an ice cream. Because as soon as we say the best, we're setting ourselves up to call someone else the worst. And is that fair now that we understand what success really is? Of course, it's not fair. And it's entirely a matter of personal tastes and entirely a matter of a random and serendipitous intersection of various factors that are far beyond our control. So when we think about abhyasa, we have to bring in the concept that effort includes humility to understand that this is what works for me. And maybe what works for you is something else. Maybe you like this hot dog, but maybe you don't. And that's okay too. And maybe you like you know, this ice cream, but maybe you don't. And who knows, maybe you like it today, but then you don't like it tomorrow. And I've seen so many people who've been kind of, you know, evangelists about the best. This is the only yoga. This is the best yoga. Everything else is crap. I've seen people, you know, say things like that, you know, and I've kind of been there myself, especially when I first started the practice. This is the best. This is real yoga, right? And then what happens? I've seen some of these people flip. This is the best. This is the best. This is the best. And what does it become? The worst. It's always the people who evangelize. Best ever. 
becomes absolute worst. You know, what we love, we disavow. What we force on others, then we reject at some moment. And that vacillation is kind of at the heart of what true abhyasa, what our abhyasa is seeking to whittle away at, right? So this is textually in the Yoga Sutra. So tato dvandvana bigataha is the idea that the dvandvana, the opposites, the opposing forces, best, worst, this is the best, this is the worst, this dichotomy, the dichotomous thinking of separation, the dichotomous thinking that the path of the renunciate is better than the path of the householder, that the 10,000 hours that leads to the outlier is worth more than the 10,000 hours accumulated slowly, maybe over many lifetimes, that dichotomy, the dvandvana, best, worst, good, bad, permanent, impermanent. This is what Patanjali says the yogi is seeking to evolve from so that the yogi is no longer affected or no longer impacted and no longer perpetuates that division, that delusion. So we can think about uh, this concept of success and figure out how we can transcend a singular version of success and try to reframe the concept of success, especially in our practice, into a more inclusive and more multiplicitous version of success. So instead of a singular path, there's a multitude of potential options that can lead us to that, 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 that feeling of, of, of harmony. Um, and it may take many lifetimes and we have to be okay with that, right? So that was, I, I also really encourage anyone that's interested more in this discussion of the 10,000 hours and the concept of success to really, to read, I recommend that book, The Outliers from Malcolm Gladwell. So it's a great read. He's a really, really good author. Um, if you don't like to read it, probably also would be a great audiobook. Um, but I'm, I'm old fashioned. I like to, I even like to have the printed book in my hands and like look at words printed on a paper. And I know like maybe it's not as ecological as a Kindle these days, but I, there's something to be said about the object of, um, of, of a book. And I, I, I may be privileged, I may be, um, I may have a personal preference towards that uh, just from liking books from a very young age. So now we're gonna leave a little time for some questions before uh, the end. And I see there's a lot of them in the chat. So Tati, you wanna start with one of the one of those paragraphs that I see over there? <laughs> well, I think everybody who's been practicing um, asanas for more than five years, even more than two years, right? I think everybody who's been practicing uh, lots of asanas after min minimum two years, you can do it right away if you want to, but after two years of practice, maximum five years of practice, between two and five years, we recommend everyone practicing asana to develop a meditation practice. You don't need to go and sit for 10 hours a day, five minutes a day of introspective contemplation can be very, very useful. And as little as that, the more hyperactivity you have, the more kind of craving you have to do um, like backbending and intensive asanas, the more that that requires a, tr a sort of tempering um, with the subtle sensibility of the inner world so that it can be sustainable. So that's kind of why I, I recommended that in, in this particular instance that Carol's asking about. Um, but really for everyone, I recommend a meditation practice that has been practicing asana for some time. Mm -hmm. Let's do the rest day question first. So in Ashtanga yoga, we rest um, one day a week. We practice six days a week and we rest one day a week. The body needs rest, uh, fully rest, so that the muscles recover. It's a, it's a weekly practice of non-attachment, a weekly practice of renunciation as well. For people that are very attached to their practice, that one day of rest is difficult. You want to practice, you have to rest. So now you practice not practicing, right? And it's difficult to say, I want to practice. I feel better when I practice. Why should I not practice? I want to do practice. This is a wonderful opportunity to learn meditation because then you can do something. The body must rest. And we have to detach from the body from at least for those, you know, 24, 36 hours that we're going to experience, the body has to rest and rehabilitate on a cellular level. So we need this day of rest. Now, um, Patabi Joyce used to take Saturdays off. Uh, I really like Saturdays off uh, as well, but I don't take Saturdays off anymore. Um, so astrologically, uh, Patabi Joyce felt that Saturday was the best day to have off because but you know, Joyce family name means astrologer. Patabi Joyce, when he used to register with him, he would, he would, and he had, he had this little book, this like notebook, this like journal that he would write your name down and he would always ask you um, your birthday, you know, take your name and your birthday. Sometimes he would ask you in a strange way, your father's name. I don't know what that was about, but sometimes you would write down your father's name. Uh, okay. And so we'd write this down in a little book. 
And we all, uh, my first couple of trips to Mysore when that was still happening and he would write this down in this little book, we all had the suspicion that he asked about your birthday, kind of like do a quick astrological reading on you and be like, hmm, you know, because he would like stare at you for a little bit after the birthday and be like, something I should know, you know, do I have any weird stars misaligned, you know? Um, so Saturday, uh, Batavi Joyce used to say was the day of Saturn. Saturn's difficult. So he used to recommend not to practice on Saturday. He said, well, Saturn, you know, not such a difficult planet. Or not, not, it was a bit, little bit of a, not such a difficult experience when Saturn comes into your chart. So he also recommended not to get the haircut on Saturdays either. <laughs> so you could call it superstition, you know, but he was, this is very much a part of what he talked about. Um, but then there's a purely practical aspect of things, which is that, you know, um, when Chatterjee started to teach, he had the family obligations that would come up um, and, and he wanted to take Sundays off to be with his family. So he switched it and then we took Sundays off and he felt like he could get a more complete weekend with his family. So I have asked both Patavi Joyce and Chatterjee about um, with the rest days. And the most important thing is that you take the same day of rest each week. So if Mondays is your day off, you take every Monday off. That's just how it is. You don't change. You don't want to make your rest days kind of floating because then you could end up with more than six days in a row. So you always want to have six days and your rest day, six days and your rest day. Sure, if we have the renunciate path and we're going to you know, follow, like let our life be aligned by Vedic astrology and we have no other family obligations, sure, take Saturdays off. And then if you also read Yoga Mala, there are a whole host of other astrological things that we need to follow, including what happens in couples. I don't know if anybody's read that section of Yoga Mala, but in Yoga Mala, it recommends that the yogi householder who um, is in a couple shall engage in, in um, couple activity only when a particular astrological thing is happening and when the one partner is breathing out of the left nostril and the other partner is breathing out of the right nostril. Um, so if you want to follow that path, it's available. <laughs> doesn't sound so fun to me. Um, so we can, we can, you know, follow a different path and, and go for practicality, which is essentially what is always, it would always boil down to essentially, how are you going to best support your practice? So again, you can take Saturdays off. You're going to follow all the astrological prescriptions. You're going to eat only sattvic food. You're never going to touch garlic or onions or anything fried. Good for you. If you're going to have job and maybe uh, and, 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 and maybe the weekend is when you can really practice so that you have life obligation and you're going to take your kids to school and go to, you know, go to work. And so Saturday, Sunday are going to be your best days of practice. Then maybe Monday's off or Tuesday's off is better for you. Take that same day off every week. No problem. Um, and the same thing goes for any other day of the week. So find the day that works best for you. I usually take Mondays off because I'm often teaching or traveling on the weekends. So for me, Mondays off really works with my schedule. When I'm in India, I don't have anything else to do. So I do whatever Shadaji wants to do, whatever Patabi Joyce wants to do. I'd still have nostalgia for Saturdays off. So when I go to India, I still have the, oh, we used to take Saturdays off. Now we're going to go practice. Hmm. And Sunday morning, there's still some part of me that feels like I want to do intermediate series because we used to do intermediate series. And so there's some part of me, no, I should be going to practice. And I'm sleeping instead. And then Monday, yes, it's, it's just, so you, you get you some of the people, they don't have that memory. So they're just like, oh, we do primary on Saturday. That's what we do. So whatever is your consistent day of rest, take that consistent day of rest. And how is your start of yoga? Hmm. Hmm. So and on rest days, anything you feel that was good for the body, you can do on the rest day, but try not to stretch too much. Otherwise it doesn't count as a rest. So med meditation is wonderful. Um, any, also like any kind of strenuous physical activity is also not recommended on your rest day because then that's not rest. So some people uh, on the rest day suddenly think I have a day off. Let me go for a hike. So then they like, do some massive eight-hour hike, and then they come back, and then their body is not rested the day after. I'm like, oh, I'm so tired. You know, why is my hamstring feels tweaked? I don't know. Well, you didn't rest on the rest day. So we really want to embrace the rest. So some things to think about for the rest day are 
taking a nap. Um, maybe you can get a massage. You can go for a light walk. Anything that's going to make the body feel good. If a restorative yoga practice doesn't strain your body, then you can do it. But if you go into stretch, I would recommend that you skip that. Um, additionally, the moon days uh, in the Ashtanga practice come from the idea that the new moon and the full moon represent the peak energy cycles that we're experiencing, where the, imp the gravitational impact of the moon on the planet and our bodies are comprised of the same molecules that the planet is comprised of, and the body even more so, um, or moreover, is 70% water. So the moon is impacting the tides dramatically. So when we have a new moon, this impacts the tide, and we have a full moon, this impacts the tide. Our bodies, being 70% water, are also impacted by the pull, the gravitational pull of the moon. So Patabi Joyce used to say that we practice on the new moon and the full moon, that our bodies are imbalanced because of this magnetic pull of the moon, we can more likely injure ourselves. He really recommended to completely rest. He also recommended, try not to travel on the moon days, new moon and full moon. And I don't know, I've traveled sometimes. New moon, I think in my experience, everything is just a little slow, but it somehow happens. What I noticed in the full moon, when the full moon, everything goes wrong. The full moon, like everybody, everybody's crazy. Like the, the animals are crazy. The people are also a little crazy. The machines go crazy also on the full moon. So I'm like, I think maybe he had a point not to the full moon, you know? So on those days, it's really recommended to try not to do the Ashtanga practice, try not to do anything that would stress the body. Um, meditation is always recommended. Intense pranayama is also not recommended. Um, but the idea is that we, we try to embrace those, uh, those key points of um, rest during those times. You can do meditation, uh, you can definitely do, that will not stress the body and you can maintain the integrity of the spiritual practice. But if the body begins to be challenged on the rest days then, or the moon days, then we could kind of you know, disturb uh, an important aspect of the practice, which is resting. Hmm. We would consider um, the japa practice or the mantra practice, if type of meditation, um, and there are many different types of meditation. So if we look at the definitions of the uh, more subtle limbs from Patanjali, we have dharana, dhyana, and samadhi, which are defined differently by different traditions. So in the japa practice, where we recite the same mantra over and over again, using the mala to count our recitations of the mantra, and it can be uh, like a bija mantra, a seed mantra, or it can be a mantra that's given to you by a guru, or you can take something like Om Namah Shivaya and just say that over and over again. Um, and, or Om, even the most universal mantra, we could say. Um, when we're engaging in the mantra practice, uh, we're primarily working what's called dharana or concentration. Anytime we vocalize or verbalize a word in terms of what's happening in the neurobiology of our brain, we're primarily working concentration. And we can eventually slip into a very deep meditative state um, but we begin with the dharana practice. Any mindfulness practice always begins with dharana concentration. So we work our concentration. Only when concentration is firmly established, then we can slip into dhyana. But we can't say, now I'm practicing dhyana because I'm doing the japa practice. We're working concentration. Uh, it's a, and again, concentration, meditation, samadhi, those three together, you would be working towards in the japa practice as well. It's a form of meditation. Uh, it's a form of uh, sort of you know, traditional kind of like yoga-based meditation. So if that is the meditation that works best for you, you can absolutely do that. There's also uh, mantra practices that don't count how many recitations you do that you just say indefinitely for a period of time. Um, so you could try that as well. I would recommend that if you're interested in meditation to, you can try out some things on your own, but find a teacher that can guide you a little bit. If you're interested in the Japa practice, the, the Himalayan Institute um, uh, is, uh, is a good source potentially for the Japa practice. Um, also Sadhguru, I believe in his tradition, he's giving some people the Japa practices. Uh, anybody that's been trained uh, in the um, transcendental meditation uh, lineage, also they practice a, a, a sort of... Um, uh, a, a, a very specific japa practice where you're given a mantra from uh, your teacher, you can try that. I practice a traditional Buddhist meditation, uh, which is different. So I don't do uh, the japa practice. I do a mindfulness practice uh, called vipassana, 
that uh, is part of my daily practice. But I have done the Japa practice before, um, and it's wonderful. Helps concentrate the mind. Can be very, very powerful. Uh, in terms of chanting, when you do a chanting practice, this also works your concentration. And chanting practice isn't necessarily Japa practice. So this is different. Like if you chant the Yoga Sutras. This isn't necessarily a japa practice, but it's a chanting practice that can also help you heighten your power of concentration, mental focus. And it's also very, very beneficial. Mm. So if you want to maintain an Ashtanga practice, but we're short on time, um, the first thing is to commit to just doing the sun salutations. And I think this is the thing that everybody can do. And I have also some days where I'm either low energy or short on time for one reason or another. Um, you know, like this morning, I got up early to practice and I didn't have as much time as I would have had I not, you know, had to have a class after. So I did the primary series and um, I skipped a few of the vinyasas between the sides so you can abbreviate things, you know, if you need to. Um, and if you really only have five minutes and just do the sun salutations. So I think the most important thing to get maintaining a consistent Ashtanga practice when time pressure is there is to accept that the sun salutations are a complete practice and to really, really accept that, to not have this all or nothing attitude of I'm either going to do full primary or I'm going to do nothing. I'm either going to do all the asanas at 150% or it doesn't count as practice, so I better quit right now. Just get on the mat. You do something. Practice being grateful for that. That's an effort as well. Then you move on. Next day, maybe there'll be more time, you know, or not. Then you accept that too. Uh, and then this way you can practice consistently. Um, if you want to do other things that are entertaining for you or that bring you joy, like yoga drills or backbending drills or um, going for a walk or going on a jet ski or doing pole dancing, um, which I've never tried. I've just seen too many fail videos from pole dancing. It just looks really hazardous. And my, those things are never, don't seem to ever be really attached well to the ceiling. So it, it has, it's not for me, but if it brings you joy, like anything else, and you do your practice and you still have energy, do it. <laughs> yeah. I'm just counting fast today. Yeah. So the lead class almost always for everyone feels slower than your Mysore practice. Is that true for everyone? Me too. You know, I take a leg class and look up at the clock. I'm like, what are we doing? How is it only Janushasana A right now? What have we been doing up until now? I could be done with the practice. I, have, I could be eating breakfast by now. And here we are holding shoulder stand forever. You know, uh, so I feel it too. And the guided classes are a good reflection on how quickly we're breathing. Um, how quickly we're doing some asanas that are difficult for us. And when we take the guided class, it's just a good mirror to be shown. Oh, look, I really don't do Navasana in my practice so much. <laughs> I seem to do sort of Navasana, but uh, yeah, I, I got to work on that. So if you notice that every time you take a guided class, you feel like if you breathe 10 breaths, when I count to five, especially today, and I was not, I, I, I was, I like actually looked at the clock and I was like, I'm counting kind of quickly. Um, the idea is that maybe you're breathing a little too quickly in your uh, Mysore practice. So you can start to slow the breath down there, try to take a deeper breath. If you um, can, and if you have the time, um, give yourself maybe instead of five breaths, you could do six breaths. It's okay to hold the postures for longer than five breaths. But Tabi Joy said you could hold all the, the asanas for up to 50 breaths. Um, but that doesn't sound so fun, does it? Marichasana D for 50 breaths. You know, it sounds like hmm, I'd rather not, you know, Kormasana for 50 breaths and Supta Kormasana for another 50 breaths. It starts to sound like torture, you know? So five breaths, if your five breaths is too short, you can do six or seven. That's okay. You notice in the guided classes that you're, you, you know, you're just, if you get primary series, the whole full primary backbending, closing, if you get that done in a, in a Mysore practice in 45 minutes, then you're definitely breathing too fast. Um, and you did all the vinyasas and everything, then you're breathing. Definitely, it's a little too fast breath. And you should, you should breathe a little slower. At least try to let it take an hour. Hour and 15 minutes is kind of like a, a pretty stable primary series in, the, in a Mysore setting. Um, some of the extra breaths in the guided class come from waiting for the group to kind of collect themselves. And you would be able to economize those breaths in your Mysore practice. 
but uh, look out for when you're breathing a little too fast. Slow, deep breathing calms the nervous system. And slow, deep breathing is kind of where the magic of breath, body, and mind start to happen in the practice. Anybody here have a question? We're good? Okay. One more from... Oh, butter, so, butter, yeah, butter Padmasana and Yoga Mudra, the last couple of asanas. Uh, so very, so very often what happens when we go into lotus position is we try to bind our lotus, right? And so what does the bind mean? So we have our feet once we've gotten into lotus and we're, we're instructed to hold the top foot first. So from a technical perspective, what most people do, will go over and twist a little over to hold that foot. And they're like, yeah, look at me. I got one foot. That's awesome. And then they realize, oh no, I'm not, I don't, this is a disaster, but we get attached to that one foot. So we have leaned and twisted a little over to the right. And then we think, let me fold forward now while holding on to this one life preserver that I have over here. And then we fold forward and we're kind of like keeled over, but not really centered. And we're holding on to that lotus, the one lotus foot we can grab. And of course we feel off center. So if the bind isn't symmetrical, what I recommend the people do is don't bind. And you can either hold onto your elbows or if you're close, you can reach your hands symmetrically towards your feet. And then when you fold forward, your hands will move towards your feet as you fold and you'll feel more symmetrical. But if you get attached to binding one hand, when you don't have the symmetrical shoulder flexibility to bind both hands, of course, when you feel forward, fold forward, you're going to feel a sort of off kilter. The other thing, of course, um, that can make you feel a little off kilter is if your lotus itself isn't balanced. I mean, one hip is tighter than the other. So let's, let's look at that. Like, let's say, let's say the, the, let's say the right hip is relatively open, but the left hip is a little closed. So when you put it into lotus, the left knee remains elevated. And then the foot is a little further down. This would mean you would need to move even further off the center line to grab that foot, leading you even further off the center line before you fold forward. At this point, I recommend don't worry about binding your feet. Support the lotus by maybe by elevating maybe both knees or even just supporting underneath the left knee. And when you fold forward, just reach. You know, you could put two towels if that helps you feel like you're holding on to something. And then we can fold lightly. So I guess it's another lesson in uh, kind of letting go of uh, any part of the external form so that you can focus on how to work in a balanced way for your body. And over time, that does make a difference because when people in Baddha Padmasana, um, you know, build a pattern that then gets reinforced in second series. So what asana in second series is Baddha Padmasana related to? Any guesses? Well, a little bit Karandavasana, sure, but actually Supta, you know, Supta Vajrasana. So we have this asana called, you know, the sleeping thunderbolt pose, which is a very interesting um, name, uh, that we hold on to our feet and then we go back. People who have trained themselves in Baddha Padmasana to bind the feet asymmetrically set themselves up for an even worse scenario when we come to Supta Vajrasana. So if we have like a fine, they reached over and somehow the other got held and we're leaning off to the center and now we have to bend backwards, then it starts to be a sort of uh, impossible scenario, um, which can create even more asymmetry and even injury. Uh, so it's really important that we understand kind of like what we're working in the practice, why we're working it in the practice. Um, the forward folds also in Baddha Padmasana and Yoga Mudra, um, if we don't maintain the center line, we miss uh, what Patabi Joyce writes about and used to talk about when we fold forward, which is um, which side of the abdomen gets pressed before the other and that that other side of the abdomen gets pressed. So if we're only over on this side and we fold forward, if we're leaning a little too much into the right side, so the organs on the right side get a little bit too much pressure when we fold forward. So our idea is that, you know, the, that the little, that the, that the heels press into kind of like the right on the outsides of the navel, giving a good pressure to uh, the digestive organs that are in the lower portion of the pelvis. And then this assists in, you know, the work, the inner work of the practice. Um, so, you know, long story to say that if you feel the asymmetry, listen to that. And if you feel yourself really off center, then listen to that and then come back to the center, even if it means letting go of part of the external form of the asana.
Yeah, so in the half lotus position, we're looking at lotus and half lotus position. So the couple of things that can happen in half lotus position, when you when your hip doesn't give you a full external rotation, we can recruit the ankle to kind of do the rest of the work for us. So we just we can bend or what AJ is referring to as sickling the ankle. And then we can rest that sickled ankle on the, the thigh. And then we think we're finished with the hip rotation, but what ends up happening is that the ankle is compensating for the hip. Between just anatomically, if we have to compare the structural solidity of the ankle joint with the hip joint, the ankle joint is considered a weaker joint. Um, it's more, it's just less stability. It has less protection around it. Like the hip joint has kind of the armor of the pelvis around it. So it's considered to be a stronger structural joint, whereas the ankle is considered to be a more mobile joint, um, which means this is why a lot of people sprain their ankles and roll your ankle. And the sickling with the pressure of the half lotus repeats the kind of position that many people sprain their ankles in, which is why it's not recommended. Over time, we can overstretch the ligaments on the outside of the foot if they're not already overstretched, like mine are. Um, I was just born like that. Uh, so we want to think about closing the knee joint, dropping it out to the side, demi-pointing your foot, which is going to stabilize the ankle, and then you prevent the sickling by holding the foot stable as you get up into lotus position. And then if you find that there's pressure on the ankle, we need to activate the foot so that we keep a line from the base of the big toe through the knee. And then that can kind of travel that trajectory, um, you know, with a good sense of stability. And the, the good news about that, if we go back to the organ pressing situation, is if we're sickling the ankle, then the heel and the mound of the big toe, they're just pressing wherever when you fold forward. So now I'm like pressing in the center of the abdomen. This comes up and touches the rib cage. So it's like not the ideal place for that like organ pressure. So if you, if you follow the kind of trajectory where I said, if we demi point the foot, stabilize the ankle, put that in place. Then we again have the heel, which is going to press into that. Um, it's kind of like, I think it's like the, one of the, the lower organs of the abdomen when we fold forward. And then this uh, sort of pad of the foot can hug the iliac crest, and this gives you a really easy potential place to find the foot and hold it. If the ankle is sickled, then we often only can find the toes, which increases our likelihood of potentially turning to get the foot, taking us further off the center line. So for the student that had the question about Baddha Padmasana and Yoga Mudra, you want to go back to how you're doing this asana and make sure that it's aligned as well, because that could be part of the you know, part of the origin of the issue. It's an improper technique with a half lotus usually manifests as kind of like worse technique in the full lotus. You know, it's like somehow they, we get somehow exponentially worse. Yeah. Sure. When I like Uh-huh. Leave it in the air. So this is a very common thing. I'm so happy you asked that because it, it is likely that if it's here, if so, if the foot is sickling and there's pressure there, that the knee is down. Right. But then, so then we're kind of like, we've took Janushasana A. So essentially we did Janushasana A and then we just changed the foot. Right. So, and then that's bad for the foot because the foot is there like, ow. Right. So then if we, if we then go into the functionality of the hip. So this was like, if we could take Janushasana A and we follow the trajectory of the hip joint, it has to roll. And then to fold, that means that that thigh bone is going to have to move into the pelvis roll around in there, release the glutes, release the deep six, and then move here, which we're never going to get if you push down on the knee. We never get that from pushing down on the knee. We get a knee injury from pushing down on the knee, but we never get that pull. So the first thing that we want to think about is to target the area, kind of like the underside of the thigh and the glutes. And then as you fold forward, look for a stretching sensation there. If there's any pain in the knee at this point, this is a good time to put a, a block underneath the knee. Because as soon as there's a block underneath the knee, then like the inside hip flexor can rest. 
And then we can kind of get a little bit better of a fold. Sometimes we don't need the block and we can hold. Like I like this option of holding the knee and then kind of like giving it a floor because sometimes as soon as the knee feels like safe, then the hip is like, okay. And then it'll slowly go down. But I have seen so many students get into Lotus with the knee elevated, start pushing on their knee and the hip doesn't open, the knee gets injured. And the same thing in Janusrasasana C, you do not want to push the knee down. If the knee going to go down, when you fold forward, that same action in the hip joint will facilitate the knee moving down. Similarly to here, sometimes all we have to do to move the knee to the ground is fold forward. If it doesn't happen, if we're here and nothing happens, then maybe hold the knee, put something underneath it and focus on that action. So it come from the hip. Make sense? I think elevated is definitely better than, you know, with a foot turn because over time that's going to weaken the ankle. Make sense? Yeah. Good. Good. Okay. Is it no more? Okay. Good. No more questions. Good. Thank you, everyone. Oh, wait. One more question. One more question. Sure, sure. Good question. Um, sometimes like, there's multiple things. Um, Padmasana, I don't switch during the practice, but if I do seated meditation or pranayama, I switch my legs because it's a long hold, you know? So um, uh, sometimes in the end, uh, if, I'm doing, if I'm doing pranayama at the end of practice, I come out of the lotus sometimes and feel like I sit there too long, um, you know? And, and uh, if I, my seated meditation, I, I often don't sit in lotus, but if I do, I will switch. I switch the legs, right foot, right foot inside, left foot inside. Sometimes I sit like this so my feet fall asleep when I do, but um, it's comfortable for about half an hour. Um, and then I switch the feet there too. Anytime you're going to hold something for more than five minutes, it's recommended to switch for balance. Five breaths here and there, doesn't matter. Um, I switch the jump back because this is an active movement. So sometimes I jump back with the right leg and jump through with the left leg. And sometimes I, I don't know. So I play around with alternating um, in that way. If you jump through with straight legs and maybe you have to jump through with, jump back with right leg, jump back with the left leg. The other thing um, with the leg behind the head, I, Dvipada and Yoganidrasana, I just leave that le the first leg. When you get doing to the fourth series, then we have all these asanas that are like dvipada and we have to do both sides, but they're worse than dvipada. So then we start putting the right leg first and then we do something terrible with the left leg. Uh, and then, so there's like one more worse than the other. And like there, I think there's like, there's like eight variations of it. Um, and so in fourth series, we get to do that, but it's really not something to look forward to. So I would just really be happy with the Supakramasana Yoga Nidrasana and Dvipada are wonderful asanas in comparison. Um, and it's really not, it, it, it's, and the reason why it's um, the left leg first is we're reinforcing um, the, the kind of same hip movement that we're going to do in the lotus. And we're reinforcing the same, you know, the same cross that we do uh, in Bhujapidasana. And we're, we're kind of reinforcing that up until a point where then everything flips. But if we start flipping from the beginning, then we kind of never learn the lesson. When you get into fourth series, then the whole, like the whole conceptual framework of the practice changes um, and it starts, it, it, it's just, a, it's like a paradigm shift. So one day, you never know, okay? <laughs> you should be so unlucky to get there and practice. <laughs> yeah, I'm serious about that. <laughs> I enjoyed every series except for fourth series. I really, I was really interested in learning all this. I was like, oh, primary series looks so awesome. Second series, I wanted to try. Third series, like, wow. And fourth series, I was like, please, no. Please, I really, I don't ever need to learn this. I don't, in fact, I don't want to learn this. And I used to run away. Like I used to finish my practice and just start doing backbends to avoid getting asanas. And then that was like, I think that was one of the worst things because as soon as I had an attitude of like, please, no more asanas, then I just like got a lot of asanas. And then I, you know, it's like the, the more I didn't want them, the more I got them, you know? So, yeah. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find 
the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS. And that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.